This week on Developer Voices, we're looking at a systems programming language called Odin, which is trying to be C, but older and wiser. How we might implement C if we knew then what we know now. And that's led to a few really interesting choices. At a low level, it's got things like native support for matrices, control over how data gets laid out in memory, some things that can have a really huge impact on performance when they're used well. And then at a high level, there are some ergonomic improvements. We have been writing C for 50 years now. There are patterns and conventions and expectations that should probably be supported by the language because they're so ubiquitous. In practical terms, it's been built from day one to support Mac, Linux, and Windows, and some embedded hardware. Most languages treat at least one of those as an afterthought, so that's nice to see. And I thought this was really cool. There's a good chance, even if you've never heard of Odin, you've already seen it in action, because its first big commercial user used it to write CGI software for generating things like smoke and flame and particle effects. So there are little bits of Odin that can be found in video games and movies these days. Joining me to discuss it all is the creator of Odin, Bill Hall, who goes by the handle Ginger Bill. And I would expect Odin to be a friendly and approachable language because Bill is a terribly friendly and approachable guy, but one with some strong opinions. So we need to get into that. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices. And today's voice is Ginger Bill Hall. Joined today by Bill Hall, the creator of Odin. Bill, how are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm very well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to the weekend, but I'm looking forward more to this conversation. Why, thank you. So you've got, thank you. You've got some very interesting ideas about programming. In fact, right, <laughs> you created Odin. I assume you're responsible for the language on the homepage. Yes. And one of the headlines it has right at the top is programming done right. Yes. Which is about to start a flame war on the internet as we speak. Of course it is. Of course it is. It kind of implies that you think someone out there is doing programming wrong and you're here to fix it. (laughs) In a partial way, it does, yeah. Um, To a certain extent, how do I put this? There are people doing programming wrong. Some people are doing it right. Doing it right is just a very general term. Again, it's a marketing term, to be honest with you. But the reason why is for us is that um, Odin... I'm the creator of, I've tried to be kind of like an alternative to C. Hmm. And a lot of new languages out here today aren't, are trying to do other big ideas and many ideas. They have like different ideas about safety or memory allocations or um, how to, even just different paradigms in general. And it's kind of like, look, we want to be a C alternative. So we're going to keep within that kind of tradition. So we're going to keep it doing it with doing it done right in the, of that tradition. So you're saying your, your idea is what if C had had a version two or whatever the next version along is? Uh, not necessarily C itself, but more of the the imperative procedural tradition itself. So the C, the Pascals, even the new ones, like even the more probably closest can think of is Go nowadays. Okay. They're all in that lineage and more of a like, okay, how would I improve of that lineage rather than trying to go like, oh, we're going to try something completely different. Right, right. So it's not like an experimental research language. It's No. Most of the ideas within this language are so old. I think some of the newest, some of them are like brand new, but most like the vast majority of it's from the 80s or even early 90s, the ideas are. They're not new, but they're well tested in that regard. And I know how well they work. Okay. So give me an example. What's something you've picked out as C should have had this by now? Uh, one of the basic simple ones is the defer statement. Now, some, some languages have had this for ages, um, but this is a, another way of doing control flow. So you defer a statement to the end of a scope. So languages such as like D have had this with scope exit. Go has defer, but that is function exit. So that calls a statement at the end of a function rather than the scope. I know other languages out there as well have it as well, but it's a, it's a very simple thing, but it, it, it's, it improves your control flow with like something that C would have. And it would work absolutely well in C as well. Because all it's doing is saying, hey, defer this statement or any, any statement, in fact, whatever it is, to the end of the scope and call it. And there's a lot of things that would help like with cleanup. Like if you've ever done like, in you know, the basic things like F open in C, opening a file, mm. and then you've got to close it. Well, you've got to be careful where you close it. 
But if you just define it right behind it, okay, it's F open, handle the error, defer, F close, it's done. Mm. It makes the API a lot clearer. So that's a very simple thing that should have been, not say should have been in C already, but it would, would complement in C already. You'd be happier if it were. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So contrast that for me, because that makes me think of something like um, in Python, we have a with statement. Yes. But that's, that's less explicit. You, yeah, you, with you Python's with... API. It's um, Python's with is effectively a hand like it goes over like the try except finally kind of thing. That's what it's doing and wrapping yeah. it around there. So the thing that you call handles the defer deferred thing, the finally thing for you, would be it either be like a I don't know like a, a coroutine kind of style thing or just whatever with an exception, whatever it's been handled. With this one, it's very explicit where the control flow is like, hey, we're going to defer this statement here and it'll be called at the end of the scope. So it is similar to like Python's with in that regard. But it isn't the same thing. It's a bit more explicit, clear what's going to, on. You seem to favour explicit behaviour as part as a design feature for Odin. Not always, but usually yes. So when you're dealing with C, you kind of want control over how things work, usually how things operate. So you want to be a bit more explicit. But one of the design goals of Odin is more of minimising implicitness, not maximising explicitness. So there's a lot of things in Odin which are very implicit but they're very intuitive at the same time so even though they are a bit in- implicit it's very much like oh, i know why it's there it's not a problem that's um so in- intuitive and simple which is another word yeah you know, yes they're very everyone thinks that they're simple and intuitive no they're not they're really not <laughs> give me your definition um, well, I'm going to be very careful here. So simple in this case is an overloaded word. There's two different kinds of simple. There's simple as in um, the opposite of complex. So I would call this simplex if you want to be the technical term. So simple and complex. And then there's the opposite of simple, which most people mean is easy. So the opposite of that would be hard. So you've got easy and hard and simplex and complex. Right. When it comes to in like intuitions, intuitions are kind of and instincts in general are built over time, and they're kind of sometimes heuristics, or sometimes they're just ways that seem correct to you. That's a way of what an intuition in the way. An intuition is what to you says. So oh, this seems how I know to know things. So when you've come over programming over the years, you build up many of these intuitions, and these intuitions are very complex, but they're hmm. easy to you to understand and grasp because they are like a big web of different ideas all meshed together, but they're like a small unit. Of you easy to understand but complex in their construction. So a lot of this, when I was designing the language, you actually have to ask a lot of people and see what they do and see what actually happens when they do this uh, weird things. You ask them, well, "Why were you expecting this?" I'm like, "Well, it seemed intuitive to me." That's usually what they will say. I'm like, "This is what I expected." I'm like, "Okay." And then you find out what people like. You have to dig further. What? Why did they figure that out? Find that out and go. Oh, da, 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 yeah, what, what it is. And usually these minor, these intuitions you kind of have to play with. And sometimes there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of implicitness in that intuition. But if you make it kind of explicit what, and make it into a concrete idea, it can simplify it a lot. So it makes it, makes it easier to understand. Can you give me a concrete example of that? Um, actually, probably I can, actually. Just let me think through the language. Uh, so Odin has a very basic rudimentary type inference system. Um, just to help out. A lot of the time, what, how it came to be, uh, the, the inference works is through that intuition stuff. So a lot of things have like numbers in Odin, right? Mm. So if I write the number one, it's the number one, but it's untyped. So this is similar to like a language like Go has some like this, or you may call them existential types in Haskell, or there's all different things what you call them like this. But this is a number. And this number can then be represented by multiple different things. Like number one could be an integer. It could be a float. It, it could be any other stuff like this. But if you have the right number 1.0, by default, this is what I would call an untimed float. So its default type would be a, be a float type, specifically an F64. However, 1.0 is representable as an integer. Yeah. Right? So why can't you just assign that to an, a specific integer type? And that's usually can in Odin because the Odin understands the value system. From these basic ideas of having all that, they build up the um, the complexities and the intuitions of people because then things just start to feel correct. And this makes seem like, why is this such a big deal? Why do you have to have make even the basic of numbers and, and constants feel correct? Well, the thing is in C, everything is typed, even the numbers. If you write the number one in C, that is an integer. If you write 1.0, that's a double. If you want to get a float, you have to do 1.0F. 
Or if you want to do an unsigned, you have to do like one U or one UL or one ULL for a long, long. So you have all of these different subscripts because every little literal is typed. And you think it's making it feel correct with all these different semantics about how constants values work. Again, compared to C where it's, everything is explicitly typed. Um, you And then sometimes this causes bugs in C as well. Like when you've written like 1.0 and that's a double, but actually what you wanted was a float. So you wanted an F on the end. But the thing is there's some implicit conversions going on everywhere. And these implicit conversions in C are usually sometimes to get around the constant value system in the language and it causes some again, some friction. So if you actually try and make it much more, make it just work, so I'm sounding like Todd Howard here, but um, it does make it feel correct. And it does, it's kind of like you're figuring out what those intuitions of people have. And that took a lot of experimentation to get it to go, hmm, that's what people actually want. Let's do that and codify the rules. That's, I mean, that does take a lot of work. It's very easy to get wrong. Yeah. I'm thinking of um, like JavaScript, yeah. which has a lot of type um, coercion, which doesn't really yeah, work. Yeah, but Odin doesn't. Well. Odin actually has a virtually in no implicit conversions whatsoever. Because mm. those values don't really have a type yet, in a weird sense. Some people in the comments will go, yes, they do. I'm like, I, I know, <laughs> I understand them. I know, understand the type theory. That's not the point. It's just they don't really have a concrete type yet. So when they come to, when used, they will usually, in a concrete specific case, they will get a concrete type. But they'll work and figure out which is the best one, not the best one, but the most intuitive, technically speaking, it's the best word I can use mm-hmm. um, to describe this. And it's just a little thing. It's just the little things like that, but it makes it more intuitive and get you actually solving the problem and not having to worry about other things. Did you, was this born of just frustration with C or were there other languages inspiring? Uh, loads of other languages inspired me, but a lot of it was born from frustration C because most of my day job was writing, writing C and mostly C++. Um, but I did know a lot of other languages out there. God, I don't know too many languages. That's half the problem. But um, it's very much like I know how other languages solve certain problems. It's like, look, I wish I had this idea from here or even just simplify. Like, I wish I got rid of ideas, some stuff in C. Like, go, like, why do I have to deal with this stuff? Or do you, can I just have a smaller language in times? Um, and so I, when I was making Odin, uh, I was kind of very drawn towards more of the Pascal tradition. So one of my... Uh, favorite language designers anyway is um depends on how you pronounce his name it's either Niklaus Viet or Nicholas Worth depending on if you do it by name or by value his name as the joke goes um because he is the he is the creator of Pascal um but one thing he's always done Pascal was a teaching language so he's done a lot of stuff over the years for teaching resources but one thing I've always loved about the Pascal like family in general is it's very clear very clear what's going on usually and very well defined um and from that tradition, many other things came out. So another one of my um, kind of like design idols is actually Rob Pike. Mm. So he's, most people probably know him nowadays for the Go language. Yeah. But he has done so many languages over the years um, for many domain-specific tasks, but also things that, like in the 90s. One of them, the, the Odin's declaration syntax comes from, technically speaking, is the new squeak language, which is back in the early 90s he developed. So there's a lot of these different things which I've tried to draw together and I'm like, look, I know how these ideas work. They've kind of been tested in the field. I'm like, right, can I have this back and keep it in the same kind of tradition of the C Pascal tradition here and make it feel better for people? And also make it to solve problems. I don't have to be fighting the language every day, which I was doing with C++ and even C at times. You fight yeah. the language because it's like, oh, no, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. I'm going to invoke you to find a behavior. No, I can't do that because grammar doesn't work. No, there's, there's all loads of problems and you can't fix it, unfortunately. C is not fixable. So... And I found that out the hard way, trying to make my own C compile and trying to fix it. I'm like, nope, the foundations are broken, so we're going to have to go somewhere else. <laughs> Do you know, I've heard a lot of people recently, because we're doing a few um, episodes about C-like languages, and a lot of people have said, well, why not just fix C? So maybe you can help yeah. us pin that down once and for all. Why is C unfixable? Um, firstly, C is 50 years old. When it was first created, it was designed for certain systems, had many ideas baked into it. The reason why, like, again, the simplest one is look at the types. You've got char, you've got short, int, long. Well, that's because those are generic terms because on the systems it was running on, all of them were like different size bytes. Like it could have been 6-bit bytes, could have been 12-bit, 8-bit. It could be anything in that regard. Sometimes, even nowadays, you still get 32-bit bytes sometimes on certain systems. So you get all of these different size systems and it's like okay they're very generic there's a lot of ideas which seemed good at the time or were actually good at the time but not good nowadays very good example of this is strings being null terminated mm. null terminated strings made sense back in the day because it was costly to actually store an extra inch just somewhere wherever that extra to check the length and it was yeah. a cost 
So, um, and back then it made sense, but very much like you don't want to do that nowadays. There is literally no real good reason to do that ever. So unless you're interfacing with C, obviously that's the problem, the interfacing aspect. So it is always the question of which bits can you fix? But then the type system's broken with C. Like there are loads of little things like the type, all the implicit casts causing issues, the operator precedents, like not even just syntax, but like the semantics of language. Like there's a lot of undefined behavior. Like one thing I really don't like, you can define the vast majority of the behavior and the stuff that is, uh, let's say, I'm like pretty much everything you can define. The question is where you're defining it. And that's always the caveat when people always bring up with undefined behavior. I'm like, well, you just specify who defines what. Like, is it the compiler? Is it the language? Is it the platform? Is it the, what? who is defining the language? You tell them, you must define that for us. And therefore it's now defined. And you get a lot rid of the vast majority of that undefined behavior that C has, which is a massive annoyance we have to always kind of think like what, what am i invoking here again oh yeah great kind of thing <clears throat> so does that mean you've got like an official spec for odin that you're happy with there is no fully written spec yet i need to write it it's going to take me a few months pretty much but there will be an official spec and once that spec is written and the compiler adheres to it that is 1.0 for the language ah how long do pretty you think much. how far away is that <sighs> well the language itself is pretty much done but i've got to write the spec and i have no idea <laughs> it's just because it's writing a big spec it's not like a little toy language anymore this is a huge language in many regards so it could take a year or more a lot longer maybe i'm not putting a date on anything so if anyone's okay. put me to a date no no fair enough no um, yeah pretty much yeah it's like i don't really have an official roadmap because it's very much a we don't know when we need things we just do it when we need it pretty much much like when people ask me like oh, we do this working on it now official roadmaps i've always found like most people never keep up to them anyway ever mm. so it's kind of a uh, it's just you're advertising something that's not going to happen yeah yeah often and i'd rather be honest with people who are using it i'm like no no we we're going to do this oh no we're not going to do that okay honestly then what state is it in now is it production um, ready alternative to see so we oh, for my job i work at Django effects and we develop real-time simulation software for like the game film and motion graphics industry our main product is embergen which is a Again, real-time volumetric fire, smoke, and explosion simulator, which many people in the games, pretty much many games are using it nowadays. Um, loads and loads of game studios have it. Most, most modern games are using our software for that. All of our products, Shard Embergen, Geogen, and Liquigen, are all written in Odin. How did that come about? Because they're not those aren't your products. It's not your company. No, not exactly, no. So you couldn't dictate that they use your language? No. So when they first kind of started up, uh, there was two co-founders. There's Nick and there is, uh, Nick uh, Sievert and Morton Basfic. These two, again, they've got the co-founders of the company. I've known Morton for years. He's a friend of mine. And they were starting up because they were thinking like, okay, well, let's do this thing. Because Nick is an artist by profession, not a programmer. And he was thinking like, okay, I know this real-time smoke stuff. I know it's possible. Can I find someone to do it? So Morton finds, yeah, I'll do it. Help do it. Start off with you. And the language, he said, look, we're not doing C++, Nick. Whatever we do, just don't use C++. <laughs> look, my friend Bill, he's got his own programming language, and I want to be using that instead, pretty much. So they were working through that and doing their own tools and got other things before eventually trying to get me on the team. And they eventually went, oh, well, you want kind of a job working for us, Bill? And initially I went, uh, maybe not. And then I eventually went, yeah, okay, sure, pretty much. So that's kind of got on there. So I've now been with them, well, since 20, early 2020. So nearly four years at this time of the recording. Um, so it's been a quite a long time I've been there, but it's been really, it is surreal that I'm working in a job where they use my language and I program in my language every day and we produce products that people actually want. It's such a, <laughs> it is so surreal to say that at least. And it's just lovely. And now on our team, we've got what, about 20 different people at the company, um, over, over probably a dozen programmers all using the language. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an experience. I can tell you that. <laughs> so what are the, how does this how does this work as a language designer in residence quite well surprisingly so usually um, because we're using in production sense i'm not saying i recommend other people to use in production obviously that's and any language use at your own risk obviously there's warranties that uh, don't really exist in that domain but um one thing that was helping me is that usually they would have like oh we found a compiler bug bill okay i'll fix it go just go fix the bug no problem then go back to work in programming and odin Whatever. And again, most of the time, I'm not necessarily working on the compiler. I'm working on the products 
written in the language. Okay. But also sometimes we came up to problems and we're like, actually, we've got a problem. There's a, there's a deficiency in the language. Like we've got an issue here, like semantics aren't correct, or we need an extra feature or something. Would you consider doing it? Adding it into the language. I'm like, okay. And a lot of the time I'd go, yeah, sometimes I'll go, no. I'm just having a hard line then. And luckily I've got like the freedom to say, no, I've got a hard line. I'm saying, no, I'm the dictator of this language. So this is how it goes. Because sometimes when people suggest things, you have to go like, it sounds good, but it won't work out. Trust me about that kind of thing. Because I've, I've probably tried it already and it didn't work <laughs> out. Um, but it's very much like that. So sometimes we added features and one little feature, I'm trying to think, what, yeah, one little feature we added, um, which it was mainly for profiling and the, the immediate mode UI that we make as well. And it was this, again, is coupling this defer sometimes. Sometimes we wanted to say, we call a function, and it also defers another one. So is this in case, it is an implicit case. But these two cases are pretty much the only cases you'll pretty much ever need this implicit deferred attribute on a function. So where you call one function, it defers another one. So it's kind of like a weird bit of like RAI, if you start C++, but it's not on the type, it's just on the function call. And the only two cases we needed it for were profiling. So if we wanted to put this at the top, we could say begin profiling, instead of defer end, we just put it in block. But the, the other one was also for Imgur. It's like, if you know, like, um, Dear Imgur is a popular Imgur library. It was popularized by, the idea was popularized by Casey Moratori about 20 years ago. But we have our own in-house one. And um, we, for a lot of the UI stuff, it is really nice to actually have these scoped things. Like, oh, well, we open up a, like, if, like, say, say, if tree, and you just open up the body, or if menu, and it does that for you. Yeah. So these, these are implicit. But it was very much like we started noticing there was a deficiency in the language and we kind of needed it because we could just be explicit with defer every time. But it really was really cluttering up the code and actually causing certain bugs because you wanted to only open it up if it was valid or not. So you'd have to def like do a defer if this condition. So you had to defer an if statement as well. So it was getting like the logic was getting a bit cumbersome. Right. Like that. So that's one kind of those examples. We've got loads more on top of that. But certain things like that, we go, ah, yeah, we've got to do that. Okay. Um, I, th I think we should delve into a few more of the features of the language that caught my sure. eye when I was looking at it. One is, uh, the headline one is that you say it's a data-oriented language. Yes. Tell me what you mean by that and what it, how it supports it. So data-oriented is, uh, data-oriented design was kind of popularized a few years ago as like an idea. It's like, hey, look, stop focusing on the data itself rather than like say object-oriented or functional object or whatever, or whatever the paradigm that's in vogue at the moment kind of thing. Where data-oriented is very much like, look, what's the data you've got? How do you need to manipulate the data? What, or what is the best way that can actually make it run the fastest on that machine as well? So a very good example of this um, would be there's a feature in Odin which we have is SOA array. So this is structure of arrays. It's the difference for some people if you're in a database, it's the difference between like row-oriented and column-oriented in that regard. So instead of having an array of structures in your data or, a, or a rows, call it rows of the data, you can then reorganize the data by just adding a little tag that says hash SOA. And now it's structuring as if it's like a array of columns. So it's like, oh, the first element, array of that. The second element, array of that. Third element, array of that. So it changes, and certain things on the data access on the machine, it makes it even better because modern machines have things called like cache lines and stuff like that. So you want to utilize them as much as possible. Right. So this there is are, like oh, if you've got a thousand user structures, yeah, you've normally you'd have the username, the age, the yep. next username, the next age, and this you'll have like a thousand usernames followed by a thousand ages. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Just checking, you've got it. That's one thing. So that's okay. kind of, it's sometimes having changed in the memory layer on that regard and keeping the same syntax as well, which is actually the real point here. You've got um, the same syntax as, as if it was like a, an array of structures, like this row-based, but it's actually internally laid out as thing. But the thing is the computer likes, in many cases, loves having in that layout. When it comes to um, other things within language age, we have like array programming as well. So you can actually add two arrays together element-wise and it will actually lower down to the correct machine code, like the SIMD for it. But we've abstracted it so it actually feels really high level in many ways. It makes you feel like you're actually programming in a shader language. Like if you've ever used GLSL, where it's right. got like the swizzling, you can do like .xyz or .yyyz um, to a rush reference for some reason. But then there is the, you can, and then multiply it together. But the thing is, there's actual instructions on your CPU for the hardware to do that. So it's like, why don't you bring that to the, the fold? And actually, so you can manipulate and actually process the data in a much better way. Is this because you, you're like, 
looking at CPU architectures 50 years on from C and saying, yeah. here's a bunch of interesting new features we should bring into language space. Pretty much, yeah. It's pretty much like we know how the hardware works for the most part. So like, why can't we actually utilize that? Because again, C was built back in the 50s. Yes, the most modern incarnation really hasn't changed since the 90s. In many, many ways, yes, it's been minor extensions like C99 and C11, and now the new C23. But they really haven't changed the essence of the language. The essence is pretty much the same. Mm. And and for the most part, it still works. But you're then still have, but a lot of people still have to rely on like extensions or into the language to get these new features that the compiler can not the compiler, sorry, the, the computer itself can do. But the thing is, it's like, okay, why can't you design a language for the more modern machine, a more high performance machine? Because but still have the control that C would have gave you anyway. And there's, weirdly enough, many languages out there don't try and do that. They're trying to be highly abstract and then take their abstract model and then apply it to the computer rather than kind of start looking for the bottom. Like, what are the patterns that we can bring out from the computer and give it a nice construct from there? Ah, so this is... Because um, I often think programming is divided into people th- that think programming is maths down and people who think it's yeah. CPU up. I know both thinkings, but I'm usually CPU up um, rather than the maths down. I know the maths, which does help you formalize it in many ways. Because mm. uh, my background actually isn't in programming. My background is in physics. Oh. So I'm very much know my history and background is from like quantum mechanics and such. So I do know like loads of the mathematics when you have to do math- quantum mechanics and such. But you do have to kind of like build up as well. Like it's kind of like you have to know both the, the directions the which come through. And it actually helps you to like kind of ground you, but also formalize you. Yeah. So you have to know a bit of both, but I usually more intuitively come from the, like the CPU up and try and look at the abstractions where come there and make them concrete, whilst being influenced by the, the mathematical side. Right. I have to ask this if you've got a background in quantum physics. Is there going to yep. be a version of Odin that supports primitives for quantum computing? No. <laughs> so the reason as to why is classical computing and quantum computing are very different beasts. And quantum computing at the moment is still in the very, very early days. There's not really any quantum computing programming which is out there. At the end of the day, they're just more more elaborate mathematics. Like, hey, look, we've done a nice little matrix thing we've got here that we're doing through this Fourier transform thing. It's like, okay, great. This is still like raw math. It's not really <laughs> abstracted. They haven't found the abstractions yet. Um, quantum computing, again, is not going to... It has very specific domains where it's very good. And certain domains, it's most most things aren't good. Like if you're going to make a computer game, you're not going to use a computer. <laughs> Classical is going to be fine, yeah. kind of thing. There seems to be um, a lot about Odin that is leaning towards specifically the gaming world. Is yes. that a deliberate choice? Originally, no. But uh, again, from my experience, like I usually do like a lot of graphical stuff, like physics and also 3D graphics. So there are some things in there which are kind of tailored to, towards it. And as a result of those little features, really, many people have been more drawn to like, oh, I'll make a game with this, or I'll um, like make some application development. Again, in Django effects, we are doing stuff that's not very dissimilar to making a game, really. We're u- utilizing the GPU a lot. We are doing a lot of like physics and graphics and stuff that many games would also use in other 3D applications. So many of the languages are, the language itself, Odin, is very tailored to those tasks. It's... But the thing is, we also, as our part of the, the Odin's core library and vendor library, we know that when people think about a language, they don't just think about the language itself. They think about everything, the entire ecosystem, thinking about the language itself, the core library, um, the the tooling around it, and the ecosystem in general. Yeah, packet, that packet is what when people think as a language. That's the language for a person. If you ask a computer scientist, not, I'm sorry, a scientist who uses computers, what Python is, they'll think, well, Python, yeah, it's got NumPy in it, it's got tools. They don't think of them as separate. They think that that is what Python is. Yeah. So yeah. we've been trying to put effectively the kitchen sink in there as well, in many ways, but but the, the nice packages. So we have all of the graphics APIs. We have OpenGL, Vulkan, Direct3D, Metal, WebG, G, WebGL. We have all of those graphics APIs and all native, like Metal is native in Odin. It's not a wrapper around anything. So we okay. are calling the direct Objective-C calls underlying for it which is quite nice. We've got other things in there, which is very nice. Like even for Proton, like Raylib, many people may use that to make little games or prototypes. And it's just a box. We've got SDL, GLFW, all these things that are great for making like little prototypes or tools or even full-on fledged games. It's in there as part of your download compiler and it's there. 
getting ready to go. So it's kind of the ba- the kitchen sink is, is kind of the philosophy. The batteries included, as some of you may call it. Yeah, yeah. How fully featured is that today? Quite, actually. So yeah. we have quite an extensive vendor stuff, the vendor libraries we're calling it, rather than the core, like, which is core to the language. The vendor stuff, if I can remember what's in there, we've got we've got loads of uh, like cryptography stuff in there as well. We've got some like markdown readings, the common marks specifically is that one. We've got networking things in there. We've got ne- our own Odin network stuff, but we've also got like Enet if you want to use that, or the GGPO. So GGPO is uh, for mainly for games. It's so that you can have uh, I'm trying to think deterministic gameplay across online and such, because that's something oh. you need, I need to roll back as well. So you need to have yeah. a rollback deterministic gameplay. So that's very something that's useful in there. We've got even like uh, what's it micro UI, mini UI, uh, mini audio. We've got a lot of tools in there already, which help you to make graphic applications effectively, graphical applications for your desktop and mobile devices. Sometimes, mobile's not officially supported, but some people have been tweaking. <laughs> <laughs> so, who's using this outside of the company you work for? Uh, quite a few, actually. Uh, there's a lot of people who've been using it for tooling. There's a lot of people who are again. It's mainly for t- a lot of tooling is a lot of what people are doing in that regard. So there'll be like uh, some people are doing like profilers and such. There's a company called uh, they're doing Spall, making this is a high performance. Uh, tracing and profiling application and it's one of the fastest out there as well which mm. is pretty interesting there's some people who are using it to make game games there's a lot of people making nice little games 3d 2d all the range out there there's a lot of people also just general for tooling and they like doing it as a tooling application so they may be at work it may not be their main product but they've been using it like oh i've been really like just to make tools in it so i can make build scripts or make um like parsing tools or like that it's just much easier for them even though they would have gone like, I would have gone for Python. I'm like, yeah, but Python's slow in comparison. So I still get the high-level features, but I actually still get the performance in many ways. And people, that's why they're using it for those reasons. But they're finding it uh, more pleasant than the C-based alternative. Yes, surprisingly. Yeah. Interesting. So <clears throat> if it's um, a simple and pleasant language to use, there's mm. there one particular feature jumped out at me as being very curious for a language that claims to be simple. I want you sure. to justify this for me. So in tell me if I've got this wrong. The way you call procedures in Odin, you yep. can use a specify the calling convention, like whether it's passed yep. by value or passed by reference or that N- not exactly. Tell me how so so how do I explain this? Uh, so Odin, you can actually specify the calling convention usually. That is necessary when you're dealing with foreign code in general. Be the calling convention could be C. It could be the standard calling convention, which is Pascal-like on Windows. It could be um, more fast call. There's multiple different calling conventions. If you know enough low-level C, you'll know different calling conventions. But the thing you're referring to here is more of um, how of those certain calling conventions define things. So in C specifically, C passes everything by value. So what this means is if you pass an integer, depending on the calling convention, this is usually passed as a register. But if it's big enough, what will happen is the, the stack will copy it and pass it through there. So it takes a copy, it passes it on the stack, and it has a copy, so you've got a thing like that. In C, the problem is, in CC programmers are so used to knowing this, they go like, okay, we're going to have to pass it by pointer because it's going to be too big otherwise, otherwise it's going to blow out the stack or something like that, it's not going to be fast. And it will make market as const as well to notice this is an input-only parameter. And that's usually what's really common in C. And in C++, many people do the same thing. They use a const reference explicitly and say, oh, I won't do this. But there's a problem. A lot of the time, people either forget to do this or they overdo it. And it's very hard to do. So when you're passing something in, you kind of want to say, look, this is an input parameter, but I actually want it just to be like, do which is ever the, the, the most efficient way of doing things, effectively. Like, that's what most people would write intuitively, surprisingly. Even though that many people say, no, I want it to be, I want it to st- I want it always be the same semantics. Like, obviously, I want it to be like, like, you don't write code like that. People don't. They actually write it as a pass-by point or pass-by reference, even if this causes aliasing issues in the future. So that's the thing, is that is a fundamental problem, but it exists in those languages because of the, it's not even the implicit, it's just the explicitness of doing it, and people just forget there's aliasing happening. So what Odin's kind of done is kind of codified those general conventions that most people do. So if the structure is too big to be passed in a registers, it will try, it will just pass it by a Internally, it's a pointer, a reference, whenever you call it. Mm. But one of the benefits in Odin is all of the procedure parameters in Odin are immutable. So you can't take the pointer of them, you can't reassign them in a sense. You'd have to, if you want an explicit copy, you have to do an explicit copy onto the stack. So it's more of a, we're making those general conventions that most programmers in this domain would have done anyway and making it explicit. And implicit in that regard, sorry, implicit. And it's just one of those that you do get a lot of benefits. Yes, 
I'm being obvious, honest here, there are sometimes aliasing issues. But empirically speaking, those aliasing issues even exist if it was explicit. They're the right. same problem. It's nothing to do with the implicitness or explicitness. It's just due to what people write, effectively. And unfortunately, there's not really much way to prevent this unless you add more complications to the language. Like Rust gets around this by having ownership semantics. Mm. Um, but we didn't want to go that far down the substructural type system route. Right. So, so you're staying within like normal C. Yes. Just trying to trying to codify what's evolved as a convention in the language. Correct. Yes. That makes sense. That makes sense. So you touched on this briefly. I think we should dig into this a bit more. Um, calling foreign code. Conventions. Yes. Like so, is that can I call C code from Odin? Can I call? Odin yeah, absolutely C fine. Code? And vice versa, you can call Odin code from C. Um, so that is very easy. The foreign import system, the foreign system in general, Odin, is it understands C in that sense. So you, you, but the thing is, it, you cannot say it knows what the C calling convention is. So you can define the foreign blocks, you define the signatures in there, whatever you're following, and it will actually understand and call it. Because that's just, it's just what the linker does. At the end of the day, you're just linking code together. And as long as they know the name, the symbol names, and the calling convention, you can call between C and Odin, no problem. Like that. The thing about Odin as well, in our foreign system as well, we actually accept, when you import a foreign library, you actually say which libraries you're importing, like the .lib or the .dll or the .s or whatever it is. Mm. And you actually link and say, hey, this is these import, these foreign import names and stuff like this, they're associated with this import thing. That, that's what it is. This, this procedure, foreign procedure, is associated with these import symbols. So if you don't use that foreign symbol, symbol those things don't get linked against. But if you do use it, then it automatically link against what you need. So it has something which in C people may know as an extension, which is like pragma lib, which is one of those old extensions. This is kind of kind of codifi codification of that. And also not just making it always link. It links only when you need it and used it. But like natural tree shaking. Pretty much, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. That's nice. Um, if, we're, if we're getting into pragmas, this raises another thing you say on the website, um, which is no... I'm going to quote this specifically. Sure. No bad preprocessors. Yes. <laughs> That's a very judgmental statement. Um, I assume you're saying that the macro system is bad in C. Yes. So C's ma macro system is textual based. Mm. It's the best way of putting it. And as a result, everything about the language is kind of based around that. People always forget that the preprocessor is technically a separate language. You could use the C preprocessor in many other thing languages on top of it. You could even use it in Python if you wanted. I would not recommend this whatsoever, <laughs> but you could. Um, and that's kind of the thing. So you've got things like when you include a file, actually what's happening in C when you include a file is it pretends that these files are the same. You're actually including it as one giant file. Mm. So in that sense, that's what's going on. But there's a lot of issues with it because it's textual. There's not a lot of safety. Now, I know you're a bit of a Lisp guy yourself, so you're more close to these what the hygienic macros and such like that, where they're mm. working on the AST level in that regard. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a preprocessor in many ways because it's technically part of the same language, but it could be. Sometimes they can be conceived that way. You could design a preprocessor that works on the AST level, modifies the code at the AST level, and then goes back again. Now, Odin, we don't have a preprocessor whatsoever as part of the language because we've not actually required it. Surprisingly, no. you'd be surprised how if you actually do the things that people did in C with the preprocessor and actually just codify them as things, actual constructs, you'd be surprised how little you actually require something like a macro system to begin with. And the more the, the more and more you do that, you realize, yeah, we don't need a preprocessor, let alone a bad one anymore. <laughs> okay, so does the phrase no bad preprocessor mean we've thrown out the bad preprocessor, but we're still open to adding one if need be? We probably won't ever add one ever again. If you want to add your own on top, you can. But one of the reasons why there won't be a preprocessor for Odin is because we have got everything's out of order in Odin, how it compiles, in a sense. So in C, everything's top down. You go from the top to the bottom, and the grammar of C requires this. For Odin, it's effectively you pass files, but the part, each file gets passed into different threads. It's completely out of order, so it's, it's context-free grammar in that regard. Um, and when you do all this, it means that you can actually, and then everything gets type-checked out of order. So a preprocessor in that regard would unfortunately linearize it, make it in order if you did that on top. Now, sometimes it is useful to have like a, a generator, like some code generation, but I just write that in Odin to generate the code if I need to, like if I've got some really complex table. Right. Um, I don't need to have a preprocessor per se. 
as part of the language. I can just add a tool. Usually, most of the time, they're just one-offs. Like you just write the code, it's done. Um, and that's what I found most of the time over my life and career in general. Most people have as well. Right. So instead of uh, doing things at compile time, you just have a separate yeah. compile phase. Yes, but you say that we, we have separate compile, phase, but literally it usually gets ran once and never again. <laughs> yeah. In practice, and that's the thing. It's like in practice, that's what the case is. Okay. And it's, okay. Yeah. Um. So if we're talking about compiling and the parallel yes. compilation, we should talk about com- compilation speed yes, and uh, platforms that it's supported on. Yep. So starting with platforms, Odin is officially supports Windows, Mac, Linux, numerous of the BSD, ones like FreeBSD, OpenBSD, whatever, stuff like that. Um, we also support WASM as a target as well. So okay. in that regard, yeah, yeah. But also, as long as the operating systems, we also support, um, it's AMD64, so that's Intel X64, X86, 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 whatever you call it. AMD64 AMD is what we'll call it. There's ARM64, which is, again, what the new Macs are using as well. We support that. And we, uh, I think that's what we only support officially at the moment anyway. We could support more targets, but that pretty much covers 99.99% of use cases for most people is um, AMD64, ARM64, and WASM. That's that's quite a lot, though. Yeah, that's quite a wide arc for a relatively young language. Well, that was one of my main goals when I made the language. I wanted those specific targets. I wanted Mac Linux, Mac Linux, and Windows, and AMD six four and ARM sixty four. And a lot of new languages out there at the moment don't usually focus on Windows at all. They really mm. don't care. They're really very much um, the Linux Mac focus. And I'm like. But I work on Windows a lot of the time. I'm making that's how I make my job. I do make Windows applications mostly. So it's kind of like why most of them are kind of ignoring that. And when they do add it, it's more of a second thought usually. Well, so I when I developed Odin, everyone's always been on Windows. It's always kind of been like we polish Odin, we get, make sure it works on Windows because when you port to Linux Mac, it's easier than going the other way around. If you know what I mean. I can believe that. Yeah. Um, because when you're on Windows, you you know what doesn't exist. Put it that way. Like if when you're on Mac or Linux, you know the POSIX stuff. Yeah, I assume a POSIX, and you go to Windows like. What's POSIX? <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have you don't assume those libraries exist. As for the compilation speed, um, so there's different parts of the language in there. So you'd call it the front end and the back end. Usually people have this. So the front end is the the the, the tokenizer, the parser, the semantic checker, kind of that stuff. Mm. That part of the language is pretty damn fast. Because the language I designed it to be fast in that regard. So I try to do all of that and um that was good. But the problem is our backend, currently at least, is LLVM. And LLVM is very, very slow, even when you're doing like development builds. And it takes about over 90% of the entire compile time is LLVM. Oh, and a lot of the re- we've tried our best to even make it faster as well. Problem is LLVM is slow inherently. And to try and multi-thread LLVM is not easy either. Because it doesn't really want to be multi-threaded. The only way you had to multi-thread it is you had to do a lot of tricks. Um, and mostly aren't, aren't even documented well because LLVM. <laughs> right. Virtually nothing's documented well in LLVM, but let's not go into that rant, shall we? But that's the kind of thing. So the Odin itself, it should be intrinsically fast to compile. There is nothing, like it should be as fast as you can get because again, it's been designed to be very multi-threadable. Um, like even the language when I designed the, the, the semantics, I said that on average, my, my heuristic was that most of the time when you're doing semantic checking is spent within procedure bodies. So I went, okay, I'll design the language so that I can compile all the procedure bodies out of order and multi-threadable. Right. Okay. That heuristic seems to be true, even to this day. So I made a good decision in that regard. There are some bits where if it isn't the case, then clearly it becomes kind of more single-threaded. If you just yeah. if everything's just like big data structures, like if 99% of your code is just data structures and there's no like procedure bodies, then it will be more single-threaded. But that's just kind of the how designed the language. But that's the thing, as I was designing a language, knowing how modern hardware worked, I tried yeah. to design it around that as well. Not just saying, oh, we'll try and just make it fast and make it a really fast single pass compiler like the old Pascal compilers. I'm like, yes, that'll get you so far, but how can we expand this and go further? Again, this is modern programming has moved on and most code bases are a lot of different files, right? Pretty much, yeah. You'll have hundreds, if not hundreds hundreds of thousands, some people have. Um, And it's not just one big file or small things anymore. And it's not even that. It's that we have threading now. We have have multiple calls on our machines. Most people have at least four. 
Um, even your, yeah. even my phone has like four cores on it, <laughs> which is when you're thinking about way when my phone is more powerful than my machine from like 15 years ago, which is crazy to think about, but it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moore's law in action. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So it does make sense, put it that way, that we should be designing our programming languages to take advantage of the CPU. Yes, the de facto CPU layout of today. Pretty much, yes. This is this is slightly harking back to an earlier question, but I've just thought you you target. But we've been talking so much about CPUs. Do you yes. do do you target GPUs as well? No, and half of the reason as to that is GPUs are not as general purpose as a CPU is. Obviously, they're very more specific in what they do. And for a GPU, there's two different types of th- things you can run on a GPU. There's one that's shaders. Pretty much everything's a shader on a GPU, really. But most of the type of shaders you're doing would be like something like GLSL or uh, Direct3's HLSL, the Metal one or whatever. And you do it through there. You do like the pixel shaders, the fragment shade, or the same thing, obviously. Pixel shaders or the vertex shaders or the compute shaders and such like that. There are other languages such as like OpenCell and the CUDA and all that lot, which try to be a bit more general and make these kind of like kernel shaders in a sense. Um, But the thing is, it's a very more different environment like the how the gpu works is not the same as how the cpu works so you in my personal opinion i wouldn't want to try and design a language to be the same across both right i'd rather be for instance like a Django effects we technically have our own shading language which compiles down to either glsl or metal depending on which platform we're on and but it's very much like we've designed it so it is for the the, uh, the GPU. So it models all of their specific memory models as well. Like, for instance, Atomics works different, obviously. So you have to deal with how those things work on those, again, those, those types of machines. So if you try to have a unification between the two, it doesn't really help. Now, many people just want the same syntax, which is like, okay, syntax, whatever. But the semantics <laughs> have to be really different. And there probably will be a point in the future, hopefully, where the two will merge. Where And again, with the Apple stuff, what they're doing with their system on a chip, they're slowly getting that way. So eventually there might be a unified language that'll be able to work on both the CPU and GPU. But we're not there yet. And I'm, right. I'd rather see it first and then develop for that rather than like, I'm going to design it and hopefully this will work in the future. I'm like, I don't know the future. Okay. <laughs> if so I did, I'd be a millionaire. Um <laughs> So, or, or you despair about the state of the world. Yes, that's another thing. It's probably either going to hell or heaven. I'm not sure which. Uh, <laughs> I can find out the slow way. Yes. So, you're, so again, you're waiting for the hardware to tell you what to do? Pretty much, yes. Ooh, okay. Because I don't think, how do I put this? The languages of today aren't going to be the languages of the future necessarily. C will probably be. C will probably, it's been around for 50 years. I'm expecting there's going to be another 50 years of C. But... It's not going to be the only language, and I don't know what the new languages are going to be like. They're probably going to be very similar to what we have today, but they'll be more tailored, hopefully, to the hardware. Yeah, I, I can see them being quite similar because I think the slowest, re- the part of the system that changes most slowly is actually us programmers. Yeah. Well, the other thing is also there's only a few different computational paradigms anyway. So, like the C tradition is still, at least technically, well, C is kind of based on the von Neumann idea. Like modern architecture, uh, which nowadays modern machines are like modified Cambridge, technically speaking, but that's still of that tradition. But then there's also like, um, let's say, you've got the ML languages. That's all just like, uh, what's it called? Um, what's the ML family? It's oh, church, whatever it is. I can never remember names of people. But there's different computation models. But as you look at the computation models, there's usually like a family of language around that model. Like there's mm. the fourths, there's the MLs, there's the C and the Pascals, that, which I'd call they're the Algols, technically speaking. That's the Algol family. Um, and then you'd probably, what else is on that list? You've got the lists as well. Like the small talks of the world. Those are really actually part of the alcohol family at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, They're just a bit more extended. They've still got the same kind of memory model as the alcohols in many ways. Usually I know there's exceptions to that rule, but that's pretty much the families do kind of bundle that. So in the future, I'm expecting, unless they've figured out a new, um, computational model, the language will look about the same. 20, 2030 would be the decade of uh, Prolog on the desktop. Uh, probably not. <laughs> probably but, not. Uh, it'd be interesting to see a data or a data language anywhere like that. But yeah, hmm. okay. Actually, um, it's like it might be actually because of what Unreal is doing with their language, which is technically just Prolog with different syntax. <laughs> I've not. Heard yeah, of I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but yeah, Unreal's got their own like little scripting language now, and it's effectively a Prolog. 
Yeah. I'm just curious. Why? Yeah. I think it's just because they want to have got a lot of constraint-based stuff. So they want to, like, you've got these constraints within games and such. So they kind of like, that's that's the thing that they think there's a better way of explaining things rather than more of a procedural way. I think that's what they're doing. I can't remember the name of the language. Someone will tell me in the description, like, is this one? Tell me. I'm like, sorry, I just names. I forget them all the time. I'll research it and stick it in yeah. the show notes. Maybe find a yeah. few guests to talk about it. That sounds cool. There you go. Um, there was one other thing on my tick list of things I definitely wanted to talk to you about. Sure. Was your core data types. So we've talked a bit about arrays, but you've got like mm. matrix and complex number as a core data yes. type. Yes. Right. We even have quaternions as well, by the way. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> So we have complex numbers, quaternions, matrices, array programming in general. Um, so the reason as to that is is, is pragmatic. So um, the complex numbers and quaternions are there just because again I do a lot of like three D stuff, and it's to be honest with you, it's useful to have just have them in. But also the one reason is Odin doesn't have operator overloading. So as a result, we don't have operator overloading. I thought, okay, what is the like ninety nine percent overlap that can get most people happy without over operator overloading? Okay, just do that rather than trying to make it as generalized as possible. Um, the problem with operator loading, I have seen a lot of horrors with it. I mean, a lot of horrors. And it's it's one of those where it's a slippery slope when you add it as a feature into a language. And it's very much like I drew a hard line. I went, no, we're not going down that route, no matter how much. I know there are uses for it. and But even like most uses, most of the time, it fits into two categories. The first one is the mathematics. Well, we have all that. Now you're pretty much, everyone's pretty much happy. That's why I've got the matrices, the array and the quaternions. That's all in there. Most people are happy. They don't even need to worry anymore. The other side is the data structures. Well, in Odin, we have built data structures. Like we have an actual string type, unlike C. We have array types, proper array types. We have even a basic hash map built thing. Say basic, it's a heavily optimized one, <laughs> but yeah, with SOA data structures inside. But yeah, it's what pretty much like, We've got the basic data structures that most people want 99.9% of the time, if not higher than that. And if they do need something more complex, I personally, I don't mind just calling some functions from time to time because it's not like I need it to be a syntax level thing for those things. Yeah. Like if I've got a red black tree, I don't really need syntax for that because I'm not really, it's only in like very specific cases where I need one of those data structures. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I think uh, yeah. a lot of the time it's just laziness of typing i think yep do i really have to type five letters rather than one symbol which makes me laugh because it's like do you know what your profession is right (laughs) yeah (laughs) because like if you're optimizing for typing you're in the wrong job in my opinion like (laughs) i know you shouldn't be writing loads of stuff yes i understand writing loads can be annoying like redundant stuff but just trying to like reduce like oh instead of writing five characters i can write two i'm like really but so many people want that and it's kind of a think about just kind of you need a bit more self-reflection in some cases it's like oh yeah. goodness sake there is there is a balance to be struck between yes. single character glyphs and the abstract proxy factory bean yeah. instance of java yeah I, I i do write long function names so they're usually very very descriptive so like oh this thing does that thing and it's just usually kind of in nearly in english but it's, it's easy to read like you can the thing is most of the time you're reading code you're not writing it so uh, why are you optimizing for the writing when it sounds like you're writing right once never be able to read by anyone else? Like Again, <laughs> we have a team of like nearly a dozen programmers. So we kind of have to write code that other people can read. And a lot of Odin's stuff within the language has actually helped us make it more readable. Just because of like the constructs kind of force you to kind of like, yeah, you know what, we're going to have to be readable in this regard. This makes me think one day we should do a podcast episode where we get all the different language designers we've had <laughs> in to judge each other's code. For oh, that's great, it. yeah. That would be great fun. Um, so we've talked about what's in Odin. Is there yes. anything that's missing? Anything, you, anything you'd like to add or anything you think someone would say, oh, Odin doesn't have X, so maybe I should stay away? Um, there's nothing I actually want to add to Odin at the moment anymore. Or if there is, it's very much I've chosen still not to add it because there's other like trade-offs you have to deal with. But one thing, like many people ask sometimes, oh, is there any methods in Odin? Like, nope, Odin does not have any methods. It's just standalone functions everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, where why? I'm like, it's very much a, uh, I'm not saying I'm against object-oriented programming. It's just, I'm not going to do the C++ style one if I did it. And also, it's a rabbit hole of a feature. Like, if you want to go down it, like, one of my, my not say I want to do the exact same semantics, but like, one way Go does it is I quite like mm-hmm. the implicit interfaces. But I wouldn't go down that route because it is a rabbit hole of a feature. Once you do it, you, no, 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 not worth it. it and it's, it's kind of a, you start then 
bifurcating language into multiple dialects. This is the problem. Yeah. When people start asking for features, they start ask, they're effectively asking for dialects. And I'm like, that's, I've already come from C++ where this is a huge problem. So I didn't want to have to introduce that into my language already. Like I know there's going to be dialects, but I kind of want to minimize them as much as possible by just not having so many options. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think of, um, you know, Java, they say everything's an object. Mm. I don't necessarily agree that everything should be modeled as an, as an object. Nope. But if you're going to have a language that treats nearly everything as an object, then it yeah. probably is better to have everything being an object. Yes. Just have one paradigm, right? Like if you're going to like a functional thing, everything's a function. Yeah. Like, like in Haskell, pretty much everything is a function. Um, and it makes, it, but in Odin, not everything is something. Like there are very distinct categories of what things are. Not everything is the same thing. And that's a very think, common thing in like the imperative procedural tradition anyway. Some things are different things. There's not like a unifying principle. It's like very much like a lot of those kinds of unifying principles are mathematically nice, but mm. practically don't help you at all. I would say that pretty much everything is either data or a transformation of data. That's my way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's the um, Niklas Viet one. It was one of my favorite books. I always recommend from beginners. If you can, it's not in print anymore, but if you can, you can get the PDF for free. It was um, data structures plus algorithms equals programs, and it's a lovely way. It's a good book, but it's a really nice way of thinking about things for most people because most that's it, it's technically a wrong model of thinking because it isn't technically correct, but it is very useful. Like most <laughs> things, just thinking the data and the data structures and the algorithms and how they operate together yeah what do you think's missing from that why is it not technically correct technically wrong um technically data structures are actually things that encode an algorithm already implicitly because they do have an algorithm when you use that data structure it's just implicit it's not made explicit okay yeah 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 so that is technically the case but what i'm saying is it's 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 a good idea to think of that distinction usually it's a practice it's very practical yeah 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 i can see that that's particularly true when you think of something like a red black tree right yes because yeah. the red black tree is an explicit data structure, but it has algorithms about how it works, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Encapsulation, back again. Yes, back again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if someone wants to try out Odin, how do they get started? Oh, the easiest thing is uh, just go onto the odinlang.org website and you can download it and such, no problem. Um, and you can just give it a go. It's pretty easy to download. It's pretty simple, small executables. If you're on Mac or Linux, um, just follow the instructions. Mac, Linux, Windows, there's instructions how to install it. And you should be getting going pretty quickly, actually. Um, What's a good starter project? Where would you kick off? Depends on what you want to do. It's like, how long's a piece of string, really? It's If you want to make games, um, we've got Raylib built into language, so you could probably try the Raylib library and try and do it that way. It's another good thing. If you want to do a little networking thing, you could probably just make a use the networking things with like TCP or something like that and make your own, I don't know, WebSocket thing. I don't know. Just make something up that you want to try a language to get a feel of it. Because I recommend this for anyone who's trying out any new language, be it Odin or any other language, try it out for at least over a week. And I mean, properly make stuff in it to get a feel of what you like or dislike about that language. Because you might not like Odin. You may love Odin. But you don't know until you try, obviously. And I recommend people to do that with as much as they can. If you've got the option to actually choose a new language, try them all out as you can. Yeah, yeah. And give them a proper try. Don't just bounce Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't just like yeah. look at it and go, well, it doesn't seem right. I'm like, no, try it out. Don't just read this, like, the overview. You'll get a different feel sometimes. Well, I hope from listening to this, a few people are tempted to give it a proper yeah. uh, kick of the tyres. As do I. Groovy. Bill, thanks very much for joining us. No, thank you very much, Chris, anyway. Cheers, see you again. See ya, bye. Cheers, Bill. As usual, you'll find links to all the things we referenced in the show notes. There's a link to Odin's homepage, of course, and its package library. I always like, when I'm checking out a new programming language, I always like to see which libraries are already available. Gives you a sense of how mature it is, what people are using it for, all that. Um, And the one that Bill mentioned, Raylib, does look really interesting if you're ever doing like a game jam or just playing around with implementing games might be a fun one to take a look at oh and if you're wondering i did look up the logic programming prologish language that bill mentioned it's called verse and i'm pretty sure we're going to be having an episode on verse before long as well that's almost all for this week but before you go please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, share with a friend, and generally, you know, feedback if you've enjoyed this episode. 
We'll be back next week with another. So until then, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Ginger Bill Hall. Thanks for listening. Thank you.